Welcome to the Misfit Stars Podcast. I'm Shannon Curtis. And I'm Jamie Hill. <laughs> Dramatic pause. That was good, huh? Made yeah. it sound more important. Oh, so. I bet first time listeners are like, whoa, who's, who's Jamie? Who's Jamie Hill? He sounds <laughs> important. <laughs> hey, he well, sounds slow. Yeah. He sounds drunk. I thought this was supposed to be about sobriety. So it's weird. We're talking about 12 steps today. Yeah. Again. <laughs> so anyway, hey, listeners, welcome. Nice to have you Hi. here with us. Nice to be here with you, Shannon. Samesies. So later on in this episode, we are continuing our series on sobriety and recovery. And this week we're talking about steps 10, 11, and 12 of the 12 steps, the maintenance steps. Wow. It's very the exciting. final three steps. Very good. Yeah. Like that was that. An audio yeah. reference. Mm-hmm. So, uh, first, we would like to invite you, dear listener. I bet anybody who's listening right now is like, what the fuck did they just do with their mouth noises? We are singing a song, but the final countdown. Yeah, it's a final countdown yeah. by Europe. Uh-huh. Duh. Mm-hmm. But anybody who's like, <laughs> like younger than 40 would not get that. No, reference. it's true. It's important to explain your. Ancient cultural references. Yeah, that song was a massive, <laughs> massive hit in like 1985. A, sort of a novelty song almost, mm. even though it was like like putatively a heavy metal song. I certainly was not aware of it in 1985. I was in fifth grade that year. Maybe 86, but I was 13. But no, but I'm saying it had last, it had staying power. Cause like I definitely heard it in high school and yes. you know what I mean? Like it stuck around. It had staying power to a point, but you don't hear it much these days. You know what I mean? Interesting. I, I bet you, we don't watch sports, but I bet you that we, that it appears every once in a while in sports, like <sighs> montages and stuff like that. Oh, that makes Don't sense. Don't you think? It has that sort of like... Or maybe like when you're in overtime or maybe like when it's the final 30 seconds or when the shot clock's running low. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You could see countdown related music needs. Yeah. In sports. That's uh-huh, a good idea. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so... It's, it's like the Eastern European heavy metal version of Jump Around, really. Oh, it was it was it a band from Eastern Europe? Yeah, I forget where exactly. Okay. That it's explains right. her, the funny accent in the song. I don't even know that. All I know is that we're leaving hook. together. Oh, 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 okay, <laughs> got it, got it. Uh-huh. Cool. Uh, so, Jamie, do you want to tell our listeners about Misfit Stars podcast and how to support it? Yeah, I'd love to. Misfitstars.com <laughs> slash support. That's how. The reason for doing it is because Shannon and I are progressively making our lives and our work less and less transactional in nature. Mm. When we started doing what we were doing, you know, the two of us as a married pair of working artists, really the only idea we had in our mind, because this is kind of the only idea that gets put into your mind in a capitalist music industry, <laughs> is that you, it's music is widget, right? Make music, sell music. And right. if you make more music, you can sell more music. And maybe if you get creative, you can sell stuff peripheral to music. T-shirts, yeah. you know, stickers. Well, tell me, listener, when's the last time you actually bought music? Because yeah. nobody does that anymore. That, we stream. That ship is freaking sailed. Do, we personally do buy music. We buy records from, specifically vinyl records, and mm-hmm. sometimes CDs from artists that we want to support. Yep. That is something we do. But, but mostly when we listen to music, we're streaming it. Yeah. Like, like every, everybody. Like everybody. It's because it's... It's it's convenient. I mean, it's why wouldn't you do that? It's the same reason you don't like get DVDs at Target anymore and bring them home. Like you could, right? right. And why, some people do, but yeah. most people don't. Exactly. So that whole like selling music to to do what we do, it's not working anymore. No. The other thing that we used to do before there was a pandemic was go on tour. Mm. Hmm. And that's not been possible for two years now too. But it's been a great like time to reimagine how we do what we do. We had this really cool opportunity. Uh, It's funny, like when the pandemic first hit, 
Our first thought, of course, like everybody else, was, oh, shit. <laughs> Our second thought, thought, though, very quickly after that was, well, you know what? We've been navigating challenges in a changing landscape for a, a decade plus now. This is just mm-hmm. another challenge in a changing landscape. Right. Granted, it was a very unusual challenge, but we figured, we, it gave us the opportunity to figure some stuff out. And, you know, s- some of what we had been, I think, both of us subconsciously feeling over the previous many, many years is that this whole notion of predicating support for art on a quid pro quo, Mm. something felt a little bit off about it. Like it's nice for people to take that opportunity to support artists when Mm -hmm. they can and it's great that they Mm -hmm. do. But we know that like, A, it's not enough to support artists these days because of things we just mentioned. And B, also, it kind of misses the point in some ways about what it means to support the very idea of art that you love Mm. in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, like when we support art that we love and art, we're not supporting necessarily the art that we love. We're supporting the artists. Oh yeah. Whom we love. And yeah. we're, try- we're just taking any opportunity they have for us to do that. Yeah. And if we, you know, on the fan side, like we're fans. Mm-hmm. Like I, I first and foremost am a fan of music. And if I, as a fan of music, can figure out a way that I can help support an artist in a sustainable way, right. in a way that makes it so that that artist doesn't have to think every single day, every single month about how am I going to support themselves, but instead can really think more about like, what am I putting into the world? What right. are the values that I'm looking to uplift? Yeah. How am I uplifting them? Right. That's a better situation for them, which means it's a better situation for me as a fan because right. they're going to be doing in a purer and hopefully more focused way the thing that they're supposed to be doing that I love them for doing. Yeah. And that's what we realize we want to encourage more in our world. Yeah. If you think about how art used to be supported, I mean, the idea of selling physical representations of music is a blip on the evolutionary mm-hmm. radar. Humans have been doing music for millennia. Right. Like recorded music has only existed for about 100 years, right. plus or minus a decade, right? And so if you think about the long history before the phonograph of right. or the wire recorder, which came actually <laughs> slightly before the phonograph, which is weird, um, you are looking what's really more like philanthropy, right? People or su- uh, patronage. Patronage, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they're intertwined concepts, right? The idea that like back in the day, it would be just like one person, maybe you, uh, it was a, a lord or a king or- One very know, wealthy person. One very wealthy person would take an artist or a number of artists under their wing and they would just- pay for their room and board. Sometimes they would literally be like, come live in my castle and you can paint here. You yeah, know? yeah. Or, and, or compose or whatever. whatever it is, yeah. You know, and these days, uh, you know, some lucky people, I imagine, still have that in their lives. What we figured out how to do is something that we think of as micro-patronage. Yeah. Where, it, you know, because it's combining something that we already had gotten good at in our lives, which is, you know, marshalling support, broad-based support, mm-hmm. small numbers support from a larger number of people. Yeah. So instead of like one one person, like we did this in our album fundraisers, right? Instead of being like, okay, we need about 15 grand to make this new record. We got to go looking for one person with 15 grand. Instead, what we would do is we would find 150 people with, you know, $15 each or whatever, you know, and we would just like aggregate that support. Right, right. You know, and it was a really healthy paradigm for us because what it enabled is a whole bunch of more people to have ownership of what we're doing, right. which is such a magical thing. In it. Because then what you get also is you get this amazing group dynamic thing yeah. where people feel like they have ownership right. of what we're doing. Like they're participating. Right. It's a big deal for people and it's a big deal for us. Yeah. And so what we've done, what we figured out how to do over the last couple of years is to 
apply that same basic idea to sort of more our general day-to-day funding of how we do what mm-hmm. we do. And so when we say go to misfitstars.com slash support and support our work, what that means mm. is that you'll just be signing up to make a small dollar recurring monthly commitment, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and most people, the average is $10. Mm-hmm. I think it's like 11 or something if you actually <laughs> do the map, but it's, but it's right around 10, right? right? Uh, I mean, people do 20. The last person who signed up signed up at 20, 20 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, yeah. new subscriber. Very <laughs> grateful for that, you know? And some people do five. The median is 10. Yeah. Um, and what that enables people to do in an ongoing way is, you know, what we always say to people is like, make it be, like when, when you're choosing your monthly support amount, Mm. Make it be something that you wouldn't even notice if it were gone from your bank account. Right. Something you wouldn't even notice. Like when we support artists, we tend to do it at five bucks a month. Right. Because for us, that's that sort of Goldilocks spot where it's enough. It's more than one, but it's enough to make them, it's enough to make a dent in what they need when aggregated with a bunch of yeah. other people. Yeah. But it's not for us so much that it'd be like, oh, every time it comes out, it hurts. Right, right, you know? right, totally. So what we ask people to do is, you know, assuming you like the work that we do in the world, the music, sure, but also the mentorship, the education. Well, and what I was going to say was we really kind of shifted to this patronage model, this micro, micro patronage model mm-hmm. at the start of the pandemic yep. because that's what we had to do to figure out how to survive this time. But what it's morphed into is more what you were describing earlier. It's become this thing, this bed of support that has allowed us to, to, rather than focusing our energy on figuring out how to make enough money to eat and survive every month, to focus our energy on exploring the things that feel like they are uh, urgent for us to pursue in our creative lives. And that includes making new music, of course. I'll be making a new album again next year. We just released this year's album in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so making new music. But also, you do a tremendous amount of mentorship of young, uh, not not always young, <laughs> but people who are people young. People who are behind me on the path. Young. So young and younger in terms of, like, artistic evolution. It, or in their technical skills, mm-hmm. you know, like with uh, production. Yep engineering, songwriting, uh, mixing sometimes. Like you do so much of that. With You've got like a little army of people that you are That's great. mentoring. But, but, but this is an area that you've been able to really dive into because of this bed of support from our community. And I can do it at no cost to the artists because of the support from mm-hmm. the community. And that's right. the amazing thing. It's very cool. I've got all these people, this small army of people that you referred to. Like, I mean, there's literally like eight or nine or 10 of them at this point. I mean, some come, some go, whatever, dip in, dip out. But like I've got nine or 10 who I'm like working yeah. in a hands-on, ongoing way with right now and it's at no cost to any of them. Well and also in addition to that uh, there are artists who require your services for production, mixing and mastering who uh, you get to offer a sliding scale to for their payment too because of this bed of support. You can be more flexible with offering people your your professional services at a rate that makes sense to them, that is sustainable for them because of the bed of support that our community is giving because you can give your energy to that more freely because you're not worrying about how we're going to get food on the table next month. <laughs> I've, I've been able to do literally all of my work since the beginning of the pandemic on a essentially name your own price basis. It's awesome. Sliding scale for yeah. literally everybody. Right. You know, and like I let people know, you know, if you are able to pay full rate, that's great. Please do. Mm-hmm. You, you doing that plus the support we get from our community enables right. me to pay it forward and do it for free for other people. Right. But that said, if you can't, just let me know a rate that works for you. Yeah. And people have been great about that. I had a job recently that actually did pay full rate, you know, right. it was a, only an EP, which it were an album, but it was still good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. We'll take five songs at full rate any day. That's great. Uh, but, you know, right in that same time period last month, 
I did another record for somebody else for totally free. Yeah, And right. that's the math. That's how that all right. works out, you know? It's a support from our community uh, plus other artists pitching in like yeah. in a really explicit way to help other artists. Like right. I, I make that part of the calculus. Exactly. Like, you know, any money you're able to give to me for the work I'm going to do for you sure. will turn around and support other artists as will the support from our community. Yeah, other it's things amazing. that we have been able to focus our energy on and follow our curiosity about because of the support of our Misfit Stars community. It, well, this podcast is one of those things yeah. where we get to explore on a weekly basis topics that feel important to talk about. So we've been diving like deep into a discussion about sobriety and recovery for these last couple of months. It's been wonderful. And we've been getting so much great feedback from our listeners who have really appreciated this conversation as they contemplate um, their own lives, like in, in terms of, of, yeah. of, of their relationships with, with, uh, with alcohol or, or even just in, the, in their relationships with relationships <laughs> and with themselves, you mm-hmm. know, like just how they kind of like move through the world. It's been really helpful for people, which is wonderful. The other, another thing is our Misfit Stars community. We yeah. do, um, you know, we, we have all of our members are part of this online community and we get to just focus some of our energy on nurturing that group of people. Uh, and, it, and that's super rewarding. One of the things last year that I was curious about, that I had the space in my life to pursue uh, because of the support of our community was to start an anti-racist book and movie club yeah. within our Misfit Stars community. And that's been such a rewarding experience over the last like nine months, six yeah. months, six months since we started doing that. You know, so like this is the, this is the thing that support allows, right? This, the support from our community We're not doing like the big fundraiser to fund an album each year. We don't know when the next time is we're going to be going on tour. We hope it's this next summer, but like we are standing in humility in the face of this pandemic that we're going through Mm -hmm. and just really don't know. But, but by letting go of that transactionality driven music is widget. Yeah. What we're really, what we really have been able to do is transition into uh, this this new model, and thank you those of you who have gone along with us for the ride and continued to support us, and thank you for the new people who are going to support right now at misfitstars.com slash support. Mm-hmm. Um, because what you're doing is allowing us, to, you, you are freeing us up to have the time, space, and energy to follow the things that feel essential, urgent, things we're curious about. We can chase those things down. We can be of service to, the, to our community and to the people around us with our particular skills. Mm -hmm. That's what you're enabling us to do. So this, this support is not just for this podcast. This is just where we talk about it every week, (laughs) you know, but that's, that's really the, the, the grand picture. And I'm so grateful for our community for doing that, for, for, for lifting us up in the, in that way so that we can just push the, push the pedal down a bit harder on pursuing the things that we feel are the most important to give our time and energy to in the world. Yeah. You know? You know, it's a it's a couple hundred people who have said, we believe in what you're doing. We want you to do it. Yeah. Uh, thank you to those of you who are in that group. And to those of you who are not yet in that group, but who are listening to this and going, yeah, I also want to support Shannon and Jamie in doing what they're doing. Yeah. Misfitstars.com slash support. Thank you in advance. Yeah. So, do announcements, we- announcements, announcements. God damn, you jumped just, right on it. I'm right on it. Yeah. That's really I'm, good. I'm really with it today. There's only one announcement. I'll take it. You, dear listener, can hire Shannon Curtis, the same one that's on this podcast. Hi there. 
to write a personal song for you this holiday season. So what's a personal song? A personal song is when you hire Shannon to write a song for you to give as a gift to a loved one. Uh, We have been doing a bunch of them. Shannon set aside space to do 10 of them this holiday season. We currently have four left. She's been starting to bang them out, which has been so great because they're all so good and I love working on them. (laughs) And then we're starting to hear back from the people that we did them for. So rewarding. Mm -hmm. It's like making little dreams come true because what Shannon (laughs) does is like... You'll, you'll say to her, like, you know, I want to write a song for my daughter. She's graduating from high school, and she's had some struggles, and this is a huge achievement. We're so proud of her. And so Shannon will be like, okay, great. Based on that, here's a list of questions for you. Just And you write paragraphs back to her, just answering her questions. Shannon then goes through what you wrote, and she picks out, like, lyrical themes, sometimes even specific words, if there's things you touched on that are clearly really significant to you, little images, whatever. Mm-hmm. And she writes a song where your experience is and your love for the person that you are giving the song to is encapsulated in the song and Mm -hmm. it's just the most special thing because to anyone else listening to the song it's just like oh this is a nice song good song good metaphors good imagery but for you listening to it and for the person who it's a gift for there's all these secret little like codes and clues (laughs) in there because it's your language it's your special little secrets and memories yeah it's just the best thing it's hidden in plain sight it's so cool because like you can play it for anybody and be like this is a song we had written for us and they'll be like wow great song beautiful voice but you'll be like, no, but there's all this other secret imagery. This is what this means. This is about this thing that happened to her in ninth grade and it was such a pivotal moment, yeah, you know? Yeah. It doesn't have to be for a high schooler. That's just a specific example that's on my mind. Mm-hmm. We wrote one recently for, uh, Shannon wrote one, not we. <laughs> we made one. Shannon writes them. I help with the recording. Uh, but we made one recently. Shannon wrote one recently for uh, for a, a husband to give to a wife. We uh, just did one for a mom who's exactly our age to give to her seven-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. which was so special and awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a lot of sort of love song ones. Uh, Shannon has an amazing facility for getting directly to the emotional truth at the heart of a situation. If you would like to leverage that fearsome, awesome (laughs) ability, like in service of a gift that you can give to somebody this holiday season, well, oh my gosh, it's the best gift in the world. (laughs) Uh, And we would love to do that for you. We still have a few slots available. We've got a couple people with feelers out. So those four availabilities could go down to two quickly. Like like I hope for us they do because we love doing them. I hope for your sake that uh, the availability doesn't go before you've reached out to Shannon to get more info. That's right. So to do that, just send her a message. You can email her at shannon at misfitstars.com. Hell, if you want to email me, do it. Jamie at misfitstars.com. I'll just forward your email to Shannon. (laughs) But whatever. Maybe Jamie's easy for you to spell. I don't know. Uh, you can just reach out and we'll send you more info about just, you know, pricing and what it looks like and timeline. And then you can make a decision as to whether it's something you think you might want to do. And later in this episode, right before the break, we're going to spotlight another song. This is, I think, spotlight number 10 mm-hmm. in our 12 weeks of personal song spotlights. And uh, just to give you uh, the backstory of one of the songs I've done for somebody in, the, in years past and let you hear a little bit of it. This one's a special one. It is very special. Near and dear to our hearts, so we're excited to share that with you coming up. So, uh, Shannon, how are you feeling? <sighs> that I know, sounds good. I always know this question's coming, but then I always have to pause and actually just like evaluate. How am I feeling? Like, I feel good. Good. No, I, I feel good. Um, I feel, I think I'm just, I feel even. I feel content. Uh, I'm, I'm 
eager to get back to work in my personal song making factory upstairs mm-hmm. when we're done recording the podcast today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy to have that work. Uh, I feel good. How about you? I also feel good. Uh, had a super productive day yesterday. I'm just kind of riding high on that. Um, working on some music I really enjoy, so I'm happy about that. Things just seem fine and have seemed fine for me for a while. And I'm really, really grateful about that. You know, I mean, uh, listeners to this podcast will know that a couple months ago I was struggling and I'm not currently, and I'm very mindful of that, very grateful for it. So that's Mm -hmm. just another little layer of happiness too. Mm -hmm. I feel good. Good. How about we fire up our good news machine? Oh yeah. What's good news? What's the good news you have? Well, you've got two and I've got one, so you should do one first. Okay. I'll do one. I'll do one of mine. So, um, the coolest bit of news last week, mm-hmm. uh, this hospital, was it? I don't, actually don't remember where it was. Doesn't even matter. Honestly, it doesn't matter. But the, they think that they may have cured the first person ever of type 1 diabetes wow. thanks to a new stem cell treatment. I read the whole article about it the other day. It's fascinating. So type 1 diabetes is uh, is a like a... Uh, it's not it's not uh, triggered by diet. I mean, it is tied up with diet because it has to do with processing sugar, right? But it is the type one is something that it's. I think it's just genetically encoded. Like mm-hmm. you would just you, you you're born you're gonna, with it. If you're going to get it, if you're going to develop it, you're probably usually people develop it in their early teens, mm-hmm. um, and it will just happen. It's not like there's nothing like a triggering event. You know, that can just it can just happen. So, and this is a, it's less common than type two diabetes and this stem cell treatment is not yet, it's, it's not for type two diabetes. Um, but still there's like, I think a million and a half people. Is that right? It's, it's a lot of people in the, in the United States that suffer from type one diabetes. And, uh, it is, uh, the, 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 these islet cells in your pancreas that just, that they're, they're supposed to be the cells that produce insulin Mm -hmm. and they just, stop producing insulin. And so you can't process sugars. And so you can, it, it's, it's a potentially fatal disease sure. if you don't like have, you know, insulin on hand when you're dealing with a sugar spike and things like that, you know, or, or sugar drop. Like there's, there's stuff that like, that, that becomes very immediately uh, threatening to your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's, it's this, this disease that the people who have it, like on a daily basis, they have to constantly be monitoring their, their body and it's like a constant part of their life mm-hmm. and it's life or death. Yeah. This stem cell treatment, this man, they gave the, he, he was the first person to, that they tested it on. Uh, they essentially gave him an infusion of stem cells. Now these either, these are cells that um, were grown from stem cells are cells that come from, in this case, it was uh, uh, leftover um, embryos from like the people didn't use in their IVF procedures for, oh, yeah. for you know, uh, fertilization. Um, but that they're, you know, these little embryos. And so they're, they're filled with stem cells and stem cells are cells in embryos that can become any cell in the body. Mm-hmm. Like they are, they have the potential if, if pushed and nudged with various like hormones and things like that, they can be pushed to become any cell in the body. And so scientists have worked for years on this problem to try to nudge these stem cells uh, to become uh, the cells that create insulin specifically and these islet cells and they succeeded. And so they gave this guy an infusion of these islet cells 
And sure enough, they grafted into his pancreas and now his pancreas is making insulin. That's wild. And he doesn't have to monitor his blood sugar level. He doesn't have to take daily injections. Like it's changed his life. And it can really like change... I think probably your self-esteem and everything too. Like we have a buddy who has diabetes and he has like a monitor slash insulin delivery system that's physically attached to the inside of his body through a port on his lower abdomen with like a thing that he wears on his belt that is the monitor. And if the monitor senses in real time that there's not enough, then it'll deliver insulin. But like... That's just, you know, that whole thing, I think, can be, like, a really cumbersome, really difficult thing to deal with in your life. Oh, for sure. You know? And I I can just imagine this being so freeing for somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to note that when I read the full article, it was so interesting. Uh, Back in the early 2000s, the Bush administration made it illegal for any federal funding to go to any research that involved embryonic stem cells. Great going dipshits. Basically cutting off funding for this kind of research. The guy who has been doing this research since then had to actually found his own, like start an entirely separate laboratory that received no federal dollars that didn't have any connection with the university that he was working at because there might be some overlap like oh no the university bought the light bulbs in this lab and that's illegal because the you know what i mean like yes. it's seriously screwed up that that decision has thwarted so much scientific progress like the 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 federal government is one of the biggest funders of medical research, yeah. and to just lop off all these possibilities. I mean, like this is a possi- this is a life saving treatment that they've they've been developing. They had to jump through all kinds of ridiculously expensive hoops to make it happen. But just think of all the research, the life saving research that could be done if that policy hadn't been put in place, right? Like, it's maddeningly it's frustrating. So maddening. Anyway, it is great news. They're going to be continuing to, to do more research and hopefully um, in the next handful of years, this is a treatment that will be available to all folks who have type 1 diabetes. Except fundies. Don't go get it, fundies. <laughs> no, it's for everybody. Honestly, it's for everybody. Yeah, that, well, I mean, it should be. But you know there's going to be people with ideological opposition to this thing that would totally save their life or make it a thousand times better, which is just insane. <laughs> it is insane. Okay, Literally. What's, what's your good news? My good news is personal in nature. Oh, cool. And it's that I have learned a new music software program and it is changing my life. <gasps> That's great. For the better. I mean, it's clearly really good if this is making the good news machine section. It really is. So there's this thing I do. I do different things with music, you know. I'm, a, I, I, I'm mostly a, a producer of music, you know. That's how I envision what I do. But I also sometimes sometimes mix records and then I also sometimes master records. Mm-hmm. Sometimes with records like yours, I do all three, you yeah. know, but I'll do any of those three things for people. Mastering is the last phase in which you just kind of optimize and idealize each song to make it sound as good as it can. Right. So final little touches, yeah. you know, and if I'm mastering a record for somebody else, I mean, typically what that means is that I am going through and I'm just looking for stuff like little errors, technical errors, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they didn't have a good enough subwoofer or a properly treated room. So there's frequency bubble or just like things that just need to be corrected. You sure. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then just trying to make the emotion that they were going for in the song speak as loudly as possible. Yeah. You know, just really try to emphasize what they were going for. This new software just, it has revolutionized already just on this first album that I used to learn the software. It's revolutionized my workflow. That's cool. In terms of like the the, the rapidity with which I can have an idea sonically and execute it. Oh, wow. Like the amount that that has sped up is 
shocking. Cool. And I can see it getting even faster going forward as I just get quicker and quicker with the software. I am so happy for it's you. It's really nifty, but like I can measure, just like I can hear this record and be like, this is for sure the best master I've, I've probably ever done. That's awesome. Just because I'm able to explore musical ideas more efficiently and I can A-B stuff in a more constructive way to see if the thing I'm doing, like I, maybe I thought it was a good idea, but oh. actually it isn't. Sometimes it can be hard. Like in my previous environment, it was hard to set up sometimes a good A-B where I could really be- go back and forth and hear the thing I had done to see if it really made it better, if I mm-hmm. just thought it made it better. Mm-hmm. This one, <clears throat> that's totally taken care of. Cool. Uh, it's just so great in a number of ways. So I'm just really stoked on it and I wanted that to be my good news machine that's today. So cool. I, I know it. it's nerdy, people. I'm talking about music software, but you know what? That's good news in my world. That's awesome. What's your next okay, piece? Okay, so I'm sorry for having two, but this was just, uh, uh, this was really great news. I think I read it this morning. Um, the uh, Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary right now, um, announced that the the child tax credit that went into effect in July, it was part of the um, the rescue plan yeah. that Congress passed back in March or April. Mm-hmm. Um, the child tax credit started up in July. Yep. Since then, that child tax credit has uh, resulted in food insecurity dropping by 24%. In four months? Yeah. Holy shit. 24% drop in families experiencing food insecurity because of the child tax credit. That's just an, like just think about the number of people that is whose lives feel less stressful because they're not they're not insecure about where they're getting their food, like they're not going hungry. That's that's a big deal. That's, that's a just really big deal. So and great. such a wonderful example of how the power of the federal government can actually help real people. Yes, and the, immediately the, the child tax credit is not a permanent feature. Uh, the Build Back Better plan that is has passed the House as of last week, and um, is now awaiting passage in the Senate. Hopefully, will extend that child tax credit. Not indefinitely, but mm-hmm. it will, you know, it'll keep it around longer. I hope that Congress eventually just makes this a permanent feature where they help out families with with kids. Well, you know. Because it's clearly doing a good job of helping people. But how are we going to give more money to billionaires? And to the military. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No. Anyway. Don't wreck my good news. It's great news. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful news. Yeah. I think that's really, really great. Yeah, totally. Do you have an adventure report? Anything that you got into this last week that was fun? Well, I mean, you and I mm-hmm. had an adventure together, which is we had a magical Misfit Star Zoom meetup. Oh, it was so great. It was so good. So, you know, for anyone who's listening to this and who's new to what we do and, and you don't know, anyone who supports us, uh, you know, in our, in our, and becomes part of our Misfit Stars community by doing so, gets invited you know, to these Misfit Stars Zoom meetups that we do. Yeah, and monthly. Yeah, nominally, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, no no more often than monthly. It would be a good way there to put it. There you go. Sometimes less frequently, depending what's going on. Yeah. And we uh, just spend three hours on Zoom, and, and it's just a drop-in. It's like a drop-in party, and anyone who wants to come can come whenever they want during that three-hour time period and hang out. And we just had this wonderful group that was, like, almost everyone was there for almost the whole time, Just and we stayed late because everyone we're just still talking it's just like a really great hangout with really wonderful nurturing caring people it's my, the ultimate like positive happy safe space yeah my favorite part is just like sitting there listening to people who live 
thousands of miles from each other have yeah. conversations with each other about stuff that they've got in common or you know what I mean like it's not yeah. you and it's not you and me facilitating a discussion it used to be at the beginning because mm-hmm. we were the connection point mm-hmm. for everybody but now that this community has been fo- forming their own bonds with each other it's just friends hanging out it's, it's wonderful it's the best yeah. I mean there were people on screen this last time from the west coast from Texas from the east coast from the UK from England <laughs> I mean it was just great it was wonderful it was really really cool yeah so that was great that was a good adventure other than that we didn't do a damn thing really I, I mean, made did- my second turkey ever yes and it was delicious you did a great job yeah, thank you uh, I really feel like I killed it on the cleaning you did. part of you Thanksgiving. You really did. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, Appreciate like it. the kitchen was spotless when we sat down to eat. And yep. to me, that's a point of pride. It is. You should be very proud. And then we just actually took some time off. And I want to mention that because people who know us know that we're not always great at taking time off. <laughs> All things being equal. We love what we do. You know what I mean? We get to make music and support other artists. I mean, that's the best life in the world. And so mm. why would we take days off? Turns out, especially as you get older, you actually need days off. Yeah. Because otherwise you get burned out and stressed yeah. out. Yeah. And so I want you all to know that we took uh, Friday and Saturday and Sunday and really just sat around and ate junk food and watched movies. It was great. And it was really good. Hope you're proud of us. Yeah. Should we do his personal song spotlight? Oh, that sounds nice. Okay. So um, I don't even have notes to to read off of for this week's spotlight because I this is a story I know intimately and yeah. it's a very special one to me. Yeah. But I wrote this song a number of years ago. It's called I Still Want the Dream. I wrote it for our dear friend April. Um, and I usually don't uh, share the names of people that I wrote songs for, but uh, we actually toured uh, one summer um, uh, a couple years ago where uh, and and I we, we this was song was part of the set list on that tour mm-hmm. and I shared April's story you know and far I just, and wide yeah um and April is somebody that we met uh through our friend Beth who passed away in 2017 from metastatic breast cancer um we met April uh because she also had metastatic breast cancer. And um, our friend Beth had organized this incredible activist group to lobby for more research uh, money to go toward metastatic breast cancer research. Mm-hmm. And April was part of this uh, advocacy group. And we got to know her first online. She hosted a house concert for us uh, also one year, which was so special to mm-hmm. get to spend time with her in person. Um, and she, uh, she hired me to write this song for her husband who she married, um, right around Christmas time, um, several years ago. Uh, and this, the song was an anniversary gift. I think it was their first anniversary gift, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, their story is that, uh, they were married right around Christmas and within a month, I think is when April got her metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. Wow. And metastatic breast cancer, for those of you uh, who aren't aware, is the only kind of breast cancer that will kill you. Yeah. It, it will it'll metastasize to your other organs and um, it will eventually take your life. Because all of a sudden you've got like lymph node cancer or brain cancer or, or pancreatic cancer or whatever. Or whatever, yeah. It can, and li- yeah, liver. It goes, to, it goes everywhere. Um. And so getting a a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis, the average lifespan of somebody with that diagnosis is like three to five years, I think it is. There are some people who, with treatment, are able to miraculously live a bit longer than that, but it is a terminal diagnosis. It is, you know, and and the research that... that, 
that this advocacy group would like to see done would, would, is to turn MBC from a terminal disease to a chronic one, one that could be that you could live with for a good long while with the proper treatment, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but that's not the case yet, and uh, and so the, an MBC diagnosis still now is is not a good diagnosis to get. And April got hers about a month after she was married. So this was a gift for their first anniversary. And um, I, so I, I interviewed her about what she wanted to communicate to her husband. And she shared all the stories about how they met and like, you know, all their little moments. Mm -hmm. um, but it was impossible to tell their story, to tell their love story without this uninvited guest of cancer. <laughs> like it was part of their entire marriage, yeah. you know? Um, and man, she was just, she was just so cool. Uh, she viewed that um, uninvited companion in their marriage as, uh, as a motivator for her to keep her hope alive. She, she actually said in her notes to me, I still want the dream. Like mm. she wants, she, she fully allowed herself to, in the face of this terminal diagnosis, experience fully and express her desire to grow old with her husband. Mm. You know, and knowing that that probably wouldn't happen, you yeah. know, and, and I just, it's profound, really, when you think about that, you know, that, that you allow yourself, and it's not like she was living in denial. That's not it at all. It's that she, she was not going to allow that uninvited guest in her life mm -hmm. to rob her of her joy, of her hope, of her love. She was not going to allow it to rob her of any of the experience of being alive. Mm. She's just amazing. And that's really kind of where the song comes from. And I don't have any more to say about that, except for that you should listen to the song. April passed away um, about a year, a year and two or three months after um, I did this song for her. Yeah. Um, and so in memory of April and um, her loved one, this is I Still Want the Dream. Amber, our cast 
like this new day with which we're blessed and everyone left cause I still want the dream and the happily ever after complete with front porch rocking chairs sunsets and song Mm. april was a powerful woman Mm -hmm. she was rad (laughs) she was really rad yeah oh man you know it's funny like oftentimes with some of the more like love songy ones on here you know on the spotlights i'll be like oh but this one my reaction is so much more sober-minded it's just Mm. it's heavy it's a heavy song but it's so powerful and beautiful you know it's Mm. not negative heavy it's positive heavy but Mm. Still, it's not the kind of thing you'd be like, oh, it's not cute. No, it's not so cute. Yeah. Yeah. What a pleasure it was, though, for me to get to do this for her, you know, like, um, and a real honor, you know, to be trusted with communicating her heart for her husband. You know, I I don't know if if he still listens to this, you know, but I would like to think that maybe he does as sort of a lasting, Mm. you know, part of his memory of his wife. I would like that too. Yeah. I hope that's the case. Me too. Yeah. Uh, right on. Well, how about we take a little break and when we come back, maybe we'll dive back into the 12 steps. Can't wait. We'll see you soon. All right. friends steps 10 11 and 12 steps 10 11 and 12 if you have not heard the conversations about steps one through nine and if you've not heard the episodes prior to that where we talk about how we landed in recovery to begin with mm-hmm. <laughs> you should go back and listen to those before you jump into this one uh because it will all make a whole lot more sense if you do i think that's true yeah so if you go back to the episodes where, where there's Jamie's origin story and Shannon's origin story and you go from there, mm-hmm. 
Then you'll, and you know, then you'll be hooked up. The one that started it all is it's, actually from a week before that. It's true. And I think that's September 22nd, if memory serves. And it's me just talking about sort of a transformative personal inventorying process that I went through. That's mm. what kind of brought me out of my summer depression. Yeah. And after that, we were like, we should talk about this more. And here we are. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. One of the steps we're talking about today is exactly what brought you out of that summer depression. Absolutely true. It's <laughs> so absolutely good. true. Tools, people, they work. Yeah. So steps one through nine, just a quick recap. Like, I don't even think we need to go through all the individual steps today. Mm -hmm. the, point of, uh, the point of the 12 steps in general is that it gives you an opportunity, affords you an opportunity to unburden yourself of the stuff that you've been carrying that causes you shame, causes you stress, causes you sadness, that you then find unhealthy coping mechanisms to deal with. Uh, and this helps you deal with them in a healthy way and just mm. get them out of you so you don't need to carry them any longer. And then you also don't need to do the unhealthy behaviors that you had previously been doing to try to cope with them. That's that it. That were potentially ruining your life. That's it. <laughs> because, you know, and that really gets to, like, you know, you hear people, you hear people talk sometimes about the difference between... Uh, between being uh, dry and being sober, right? <laughs> right. Uh, being dry, you know, and you can apply this to anything, not just alcohol. You can apply it to whatever your thing is, gambling, porn, you know, food, whatever. Relationships. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, you can stop doing the symptom without curing the underlying problem and you're just going to be equally as miserable, but then you just won't be doing the one thing that made you feel better, which is almost in some ways kind of worse. You know what I mean? Like we've all seen that person who like, they're like, I quit drinking, but they're just miserable and they're dragged to be around. It's like, you know, I liked you better when you were drinking. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, because at least you were like not as burdened and, and snapping all the time at everything mm -hmm. and angry, you know? But the, the 12 steps acknowledges that those behaviors are symptoms yes. of an underlying problem. And the 12 steps are really a methodical way to, in a healthy way, deal with that underlying problem so you no, no longer have to do the symptoms. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you know, steps one through nine is the meat of the program, and it's just a sort of drawn out, very thorough personal inventorying and then amends making process. That's all it is. You yeah. figure out what all the stuff is inside of you that you're feeling bad about, and then you figure out who else was involved in that. And then you just go and you talk to them about it mm -hmm. and you unburden yourself of your part of it, mm -hmm. you know? And it's miraculous. I can tell you from personal experience that like going and telling all the people the first time on, on my, uh, my eight-step list, all the people I had harmed, going and talking to as many of them as I could and just making, you know, a sincere and specific apology, A, and then B, an amends, which is what can I do to help make this problem I have caused better mm -hmm. for you. Uh, I remember feeling, what was, it, what was the experience like for you? It was you're just, gonna say? I felt immediately lighter. Yeah. Immediately and it never came back. I honestly felt like, um, I like felt giddy. Yeah. <laughs> After doing some of those, yeah. you know, just like, oh, this is, this is nice, this feeling I have. Like yeah. I felt light. Like you can really feel like, you can feel physically that you have let go of something and released it from, yes. from you. Like you, you can feel it not weighing you down anymore palpably. It's so strange. Yeah. So cool. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So that's what steps one through nine are. Steps 10, 11, and 12 are what's known uh, in the biz as <laughs> the maintenance steps. 
Because and, recovery is not a one shot and done. Like it's, no. it's not like you do this once and oh, no. like notice people don't ever say I'm recovered from alcoholism. No. That's, or I'm recovered from codependency. Like if you that's hear someone say that, that's a huge red flag. <laughs> that means you're not continuing to do the work. Because the, it requires a continuation of this work to maintain the conditions inside you that allow you to continue to live in a healthy way and not fall back into the ways that were killing you. You know how there's a million sayings in AA and I've been sharing some of them on this journey (laughs) with you. A big one is uh, we are granted a daily reprieve Mm -hmm. contingent upon maintenance of our spiritual condition. Steps 10, 11, and 12... That's where we do the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Mm -hmm. So that's what these last three steps are. And, you know, if you think of it as a flow chart, if you think of the steps as a flow chart, it's a really simple flow chart. It's one, go to two, two, go to three. And it's just a straight line of arrows all Mm -hmm. the way down 10, 11, and 12. But then after 12, there's one of those arrows that goes back up and points at 10. And you just keep doing 10, 11, 12 in a loop. And Mm -hmm. you just do them like as needed, but mostly every day is kind of how it goes down. Because they're all things that you should be doing on an ongoing basis. Yeah, and I wanted to just address something really quick here too. Like it sounds, it it can sound burdensome. Like here's some things you have to do to keep staying, you know, on the right path. But honestly, these are the, these steps, all of the steps, but these maintenance steps are the things that continue to allow me to experience joy in my life and to feel like I'm like I'm living in a healthy way like there there are all the things that continue to bring me good things yeah. into my life it's not like it's a chore no. like no these are the things that actually you know that that keep me alive and happy and I mean happy is not the right word but you know what I mean like yeah. it, like in a good place. Even keeled. Yeah. That evenness that you were saying when you were talking yeah. about how you were feeling earlier yeah. in this episode. Yeah. That. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, it's not like it takes a, t- a ton of time. These are just things, these last three steps, that just like they, if you get into a good practice of them, they just come to permeate every moment of your existence in a really positive and healthy way, yeah. you know? And like, it's not like you like, wow, it's 5.30 p.m. I got to take half an hour and do steps 10, 11, 12. It's not like that. It's just like, they're just the tools that are most like readily at my grasp when I need mm-hmm. to course correct. I mean, they can be a daily ritual for some people, I yep. imagine. Like yep. a set time to sit down and be intentional. Like that's a great idea. Nothing wrong with that. No, but but it, they don't, it doesn't have to be that. No, and for people who are resistant to structure, which a lot of people in the program are, <laughs> like it's really good to know that like this ongoing stuff it doesn't have, it's not onerous. Right. Right. Not at all. It's actually just kind of like, the, it's just joyous knowing that you have these little tools yeah. that you can use just to help. Yeah. So let's get into them. Step 10, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Mm. So like, you know, I was just saying that steps one through nine is that process of taking your inventory, personal inventory. Step 10 is just like, Keep doing that. Yeah. That's all step 10 means. Now that you've cleared out that list, that big list, the laundry list from your past, just keep short accounts. Yeah. The point is like once you've cleared out the backlog, Mm. that list Mm -hmm. of stuff that went wrong in your past, the idea is going forward, never to add anything to the list. Yes. Because <laughs> anything that, gets, that slips by and gets added to the list, that gets in there and that just starts building living shame, cancerously inside of you. Yeah, all it's those things. so bad. Mm-hmm. So continue to take personal inventory. What does that mean? It just means that like, 
you gotta just stay on top of your shit, mm-hmm. to put it colloquially. <laughs> and you can't let anything slide by, you yeah. know? Uh, resentment is uh, the dubious luxury of normal men, is how they put it in the AA mm. literature, mm. right? Uh, Explain that. The idea being that normal people can engage in building resentments because, you know, they're not, they don't have these bad coping mechanisms. But the dubious luxury, it means that it's really actually not good for anybody. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they may not be an alcoholic. (laughs) They're not going to drink over it. Okay. So they're, you know, they're off the hook as far as that goes. But like, like you don't get anything for free. There's no free lunch in life. No. So like you might not be drinking over it, but you're doing something, you're, acting like an asshole, you're lashing out, you're right. closing off emotionally from your partner. Right. There's all these different what's ways. The, what's the other uh, saying about resentment? That, that it is like a corrosive acid that eats away at its container. Yeah. <laughs> that I love eats all away at the vessel containing it, yeah, right? Yeah. The idea being, or another great one is, uh, re- it's like resentment is a poison pill that you take when you're mad at someone else or something like okay. that. But the point is that like when we feel resentment I gotta look up. It's towards great. someone else because of an interaction that we've had, maybe it was something they did to us or maybe it's something we did to them and we sort of figured out how to justify our actions by feeling resentment toward them, then like the, whatever resentment we're carrying from any bad interaction, whether it was our fault or not, is not affecting that person at all. No. Like it isn't, they they don't know what's bouncing around inside your head. The quote about it is so relevant here. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. <laughs> Fantastic. So good. And that's exactly it, right? Like you're yeah. all you're all like turbulent and upset. And the other person's just totally clueless. They don't know. La, they don't la, know la, what's la, going la. on in your internal fucked up totally, monologue. Totally. Yeah, totally. Not at all. So continued to take personal inventory. It just means that anything that you're feeling, just like that your spidey sense is like, wait, that didn't go quite right. Wait, I'm not feeling quite right about this. Yeah. You, you can't let that stuff slide. You, right. you have to just examine it. And you have to right. really be like, wait a minute. You got to pause. You just gotta be like, wait, okay okay, hold on, what happened there? Yeah. Did I have any part in that? Like sometimes stuff just happens. Yeah. And it doesn't feel good. No, it's not your fault. It just doesn't feel good. Yeah. And like, and acknowledging that can feel really good too because it's just a good check-in with yourself. Yeah. It's like, okay, no, that's, I'm fine. That was, that that thing that happened wasn't fine, but I'm blameless in, in, in it. I didn't, I, right. I didn't have any part in it. And right. if you didn't have any part, that's okay. That's checking off that, taking your inventory. But yeah. then at least you don't have that nagging worry about yeah. it because the nagging worries can be as bad as the resentments yeah, themselves, right? Totally. And so you just make sure that you're cool with whatever has gone on. Uh, And then the second half of it, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That is a biggie. That's a short version, right, of that process in, uh, you know, steps one through nine, where you are unburdening yourself of the stuff that you would otherwise carry with you, you know? And this is that. And like, here's a great example to to make this tangible for you of how this plays out like in in my life. Like sometimes I'll just be like preoccupied about something and I'll snap at Shannon. And she didn't deserve that. And that could make a bad feeling. And then I could feel shame for having done that. If I don't address it, it could just turn to like this negative, ugly thing for both of us. But if I'm just like, oh shit, I'm sorry. I just snapped at you. I didn't mean to do that. I I apologize. Is there anything I can do to make that better for you? Yeah. That's all you got to do. It literally takes five seconds like I just did. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But then Shannon feels seen. She feels like I'm thinking about her because I am. Mm -hmm. She feels cared for because I'm caring for her in that moment. Well, the point of you doing this isn't for me. No. Though it is for you. Mm -hmm. But that said, it it does have that benefit of of making good things happen for me too. (laughs) Yes. It It just makes everything better. 
Yeah. You know, it makes it makes it better for you because you don't have to carry it anymore because you've let it go. And it makes it better for the other person. And that's great too, because like you don't want to just walk around causing little bits of wreckage in your life. Right. Well, that's and, not a healthy way to live. And in that same scenario, let's say you've you were preoccupied with something and you kind of snapped at me. Let's say I notice it and I say, that didn't feel good or something. You know what I mean? Like there's a way for me mm-hmm. to approach you in an in an, a non-shaming way yep. to say, this is how that made me feel you know, yeah. and, and offer an opportunity for you to be like, you know what? I shouldn't have snapped at you. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then we quickly move on. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, listener, there have been times when we have not quickly moved on yeah. <laughs> because we hadn't done that little step of, of just clearing the air yeah. as soon as possible. And things snowball. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you had this experience Both in your own life. Both of us feel like crap for five hours and then we blow up after dinner. Yeah. And sometimes these things have gone on for weeks or months mm-hmm. at various stages in our relationship. Yeah. Not really so much in the last handful of years, I would say. Like, But there yeah. have been times where we haven't been as good about staying on top of things. And those small things become bigger things, which become bigger things, which become things that we cannot ignore any longer that, we're, that are really taking up residence in our house in a really bad way. My depression this summer was very much like that, you know? Mm-hmm. It wasn't interpersonal between me and Shannon, but I was just carrying some stress about just a variety of just like sort of external factors in the world and yeah. stuff, stuff that was really out of my control. But I had just been like gathering stress about it and not really acknowledging it or dealing with it appropriately. Mm. And the thing that made it all feel better, the thing that started this whole miniseries that we're on is that I just did a long form personal inventory. I took an entire day and just dug into it and journaled and wrote about it and really got to the core and the truth for me of what I was feeling and why I was feeling that way. And I got it out of me. I got it out of me. I shared it with Shannon. I posted it on the internet. You know what I mean? Mm Sharing all this stuff is really helpful. So um, a personal inventory can look like that more major sit down, check in, do long journaling all day long kind of thing. But it also can look like momentary, okay, I don't feel right about that interaction. What do I feel about it? What do I need to do about it? Taking yeah. ownership for my part and moving on. Like it can be both. It's a major house cleaning versus like a spot cleaning. You right. know what I mean? Right, right, right. Like mm-hmm. if you're keeping up on your spot cleaning, you don't need to do a like a, a whole house cleaning as often. Right. You know, yeah, but yeah. you still do need to do it every so often. Sure. You know? Yeah. And the, that, you know, so you can, you do both really. Yeah. They're both part of it. So that is, uh, that's step 10. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him mm-hmm. praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I'll tell you right now that, you know, coming into the rooms as a committed atheist and hearing step 11, especially, that was really like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, okay, you say that it's not God, like a Christian God, but we're talking about prayer and we're talking about meditation. We're talking about waiting for knowledge of his will for us. And like it, it sounds Christian-y. I want to admit that, like I really do, mm. because I know that if people are going to have a problem with the steps, it's going to be because of its Christian-y nature. Well, and my experience was I left the church and then got into 12-step recovery for codependency, and I'm like, what the heck? Yeah. No, thank you. No, we're I not just, doing prayer. I just left all this, yeah. so I had to do my own reckoning with all this yep. kind of thing, with all this stuff too. But you know, it's just language, people. We can get past it. We can get past language, and we can figure out what it actually mm. means, right? Uh, so they used 
they used religious-esque metaphors because it was a handy metaphor to them that kind of got mm-hmm. to the idea. I won't belabor this because we discussed it exhaustively in previous episodes in this miniseries. The idea of God in AA, though, it's not a Christian monotheistic deity, right? It's not some white-haired judgy guy living up in the clouds with a magic wand. It can be if you want it to be, yeah. but that's the point. It's each of our own understanding. Yeah, as we understood him. It says it in italics in this thing that I just read to you. Mm-hmm. And it says it in italics... Like For almost, almost every place after the word God in the entire big book, it, it, it says, as we understood him in italics. Because they really <laughs> like, want to emphasize. Like, uh, remember, don't get hung, hung up on this Yes, <laughs> every time you see it. Yeah. It can be whatever you want it to be. Yeah. It's the... It's, uh, placeholder for the idea that you're not driving the bus. You're not in control of every damn thing that happens in the world. Yeah. You know, a, a meteorite hits your house. You're not in control of that. Right. Granted, that's a low probability occurrence, you know, but there's just things that happen constantly. Like it's not hard to look around your life and see a bunch of examples every single day of you not being in control of everything. I know that like there's all these people like Americans especially are like, I'm a self-made man, I'm in control. <laughs> but you're not, man, you're not in control. Someone runs a red light and T-bones you at an intersection or somebody you love or like just things happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And we can try to tightly control our lives as much as possible. I mean, good luck. You're just going to get yourself wound up and you're going to land yourself in a 12-step program. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which will be great for you, so yay you. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, really, I guess do that? I don't know, you know? But the point is that we're not in control. And so when they, the, the, let's break this down, right? So sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, right? Mm-hmm. So prayer and meditation. I have heard this described as prayer is asking the question, meditation is waiting for the answer, mm, right? That's interesting. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a religious thing. It could just be as simple as me in my mind thinking, ugh, what do I do here? Mm. And then just waiting for a minute. A pause. A pause, mm-hmm. right? Like like Jamie pause, yeah. Hill. Yeah. Like that callback from the beginning of our episode. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah, pretty good callback, Shane. <laughs> no, but a pause. I, 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 I take you seriously. Yeah. I just had a joke. Pretty good, pretty good joke. It. Thank you. Good joke. Good joke. <laughs> you can tell it's a good joke because I keep having to say good joke. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a pause. Like, what should I do here? Yeah, really. I mean, yeah. pausing is kind of the same thing as praying, right? Something that I am bad at naturally and have gotten much better at through practicing this is I can be impulsive. I can feel uncomfortable about something and just immediately do something. Right. And it might not be the right thing. It might actually make it worse. It's pure reaction. Yeah. My reactions aren't great. It's why I end up in AA. <laughs> you know what I mean? When, when I'm stressed out, when something like is triggering to well, me. Well, and reactions that are based in fear mm-hmm. or shame. Mm-hmm. Or uh, anger. Yeah. You know, those are never going to be productive reactions. Yeah. Pretty much ever. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, if you're in the woods and there's a wild animal that's threatening your life and your reaction is based in fear to like get the hell out of there. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. probably productive. Yeah. But like aside from like basic survival. Although like what <laughs> if it's the kind of bear that you're actually not supposed to run away from? What if, it's a, what if it's a kind that you're actually supposed to make yourself look big at and walk True. slowly backwards away our from? Like your reaction are, could be bad. Our instincts are sometimes terrible. Yeah. But, you know, but, but my point is that like re- reactions in our everyday lives, in our relationships and in our in relationship with ourselves. Reactions based in fear, shame, and anger are gen- generally speaking not productive ones. Yeah, I think it's absolutely right. And so prayer and meditation is really just the idea that you want to consciously, like you don't want to do this stuff subliminally and reactively. Mm. 
Instead, what you want to do is you want to consciously identify, I'm feeling something right now. Mm -hmm. What is it? And then just wait for a minute Mm -hmm. and just see if a better idea pops into your mind about mm-hmm. what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, and like how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. That's all prayer and meditation is. It know, does, it's, it's not like getting on your knees and being like, God, comma, mm-hmm. and then like sitting in lotus position mm-hmm. and like going ohm for 20 minutes or something like that. It's not, it's not that. It can be that. Sure. Some people make it that, and that's fine. But all it really means is you're just not reflexively like knee-jerk reactioning your way through life. So to me, uh, another layer of like the prayer meditation is I, I see it as being um, an emptying of my mind of the things that I f- compulsively fill it with. Mm-hmm. And these would be things like, what do I have to do today? What are we having for dinner? What do we, like the, the, the stuff or like, you know, just, just stuff that's on my mind, the stuff that I have to think about every day or that I might need to do. But like the practice of, of emptying out those thoughts and, and listening. Yeah to a, a, a stiller, truer, deeper part of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that, that for me personally requires practice, like to stay in touch with being able to listen like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, so, so for me, there are certain times of the day where I, where I do this, like the, in the mornings when I first wake up, my, I don't open my eyes when I'm first awake because I spend a bit of time just listening. Mm. You know, I spend that, that's a period of time where it's easier for me to empty out the thoughts that might crowd out that inner stiller voice. The veil is the thinnest you know? right then, yeah. Yeah, and so that's a really, I found for me personally, it's a really great time to, to spend that time like just setting aside the, the thoughts that crowd and getting in, just getting a, a daily practice for what does it feel like to listen to that inner voice. Mm-hmm. Not the reaction voice, the the true still voice inside, mm-hmm. you know, and and so for me that's that's like a daily thing. But I also pursue other activities in my life that nurture that ability because it's not I, I've not always been able to tune into that voice, mm-hmm. you know. That's not something that that has come naturally to me. What are those activities for you that nurture that? So um, songwriting is one of them. Yeah, like that act of creation, like that creative space is mm-hmm. a very similar. Um, space to that cr- emptying out the stuff that crowds and making space for listening. Yeah. Um, so the, that's that's something. I um, I go through periods of time where I'm reading various things. Like I I had this book that I was doing like reading sort of like these daily meditations for a while um, this summer. I've kind of gotten out of the habit of it the last couple of months, but they're just short little you know meditations on. On the, on the nature of existence, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so, and, and, and they're thought provoking. They're short enough that like it's, it's not super time consuming, but I can just take a moment for myself mm-hmm. and sit and read and contemplate these thoughts, these ideas. So like, it's just things that I know nurture that part of me, that, that muscle that allows me to empty out the stuff that crowds and make space for the listening. Yeah. You know? You know, that's interesting because I do a similar thing with working on music too. Yeah. As I was going to say that something I do, like especially if I have something that feels like thornier, like I really need to process it a bit, I'll really intentionally like sit, think about it, maybe even like, you know, write something out and text at it about mm-hmm. it, just, just get mm-hmm. thoughts on a paper out of my head or whatever, you know, Yeah. almost as if I'm writing a message to somebody or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. and then I'll just put that away 
and I'll just work on music maybe for the whole day or whatever. Mm. And then I'll come back to the thing like hours later. I mean, mm. two hours, eight hours later. Mm -hmm. And more times than not, I'll just feel very clear about it. Interesting. Because my subconscious will have kind of, I'll have planted the seeds in my subconscious. Yeah. And then my subconscious, like that deeper kind of truer part of me can kind of do the work on its yeah. own, you know? Yeah. Because working on music for me, like with you, just really gets me to a, that kind of meditative sort of space. Right. No, I think that there's like scientific evidence to back up the, the notion that engaging in creative behavior is is healthy for us mm -hmm. in that way. Like it allows us to process emotions in the background, you know, mm -hmm. like, and, and music in particular has the ability to unlock <laughs> parts of our brain mm -hmm. that, you know, that have remained shut off to us too. So pretty yeah. cool. Totally. So sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. So prayer, asking the question, meditation, waiting for the answer. What is God as we understood him? Mm. It is, in this situation, it's that part of us that maybe knows better than we do, mm -hmm. like what we should do, you know? And we can access it different ways. Sometimes we can access it just by getting still and just like letting that first wave of reactive thoughts course through us and pass on and then reveal the second layer, maybe mm -hmm. more productive thoughts. Sometimes if you have, if you have a creative discipline, uh, you know, you can access it that way. Everyone finds their own way. It's not mm -hmm. the same for everybody, yeah. but the idea is that the basic idea of this is that like, you're just, you're waiting out that first reactive ego-based <laughs> seriously <thing. laughs> ego-based yeah. fear-based shame-based yeah. whatever it is. It's definitely not usually good. Right. Yeah. So you just let that pass. You just let that go through town and then you wait to see what's next, Yeah, you know? And then you parse that and deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second part of it, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've always interpreted this as meaning is that we're really trying to focus on the idea that we're getting the ego and the fear and the shame completely out of the way and we're waiting for what's right. Yeah. What feels true, mm -hmm. you know? Not mm -hmm. what feels convenient, not what feels quick, not what feels like mm -hmm. it might like lance the boil right then for a second mm -hmm. without actually healing mm -hmm. what's causing it, mm -hmm. you know? So for me, this is this part of this step is really where the idea of doing the next right thing comes from yeah. for me. Like and I, I if you've been listening to this podcast for any stretch of time, you know that I say that phrase a lot. Yeah. I wrote an entire record yeah. <laughs> about my experience with what it means to, to, to listen for and then do the next right thing. And it's based entirely on my experience with, with this kind of activity. Yeah. The song, or excuse me, the record and her whisper becomes a storm is a step-by-step -step moment, like teeny tiny moment by moment to process through this idea of getting still emptying out the stuff that crowds, listening for what's true, and then praying for, I mean, that's, I don't, I don't use that word in my own life really, but like, uh, but, but as this, the step says, you know, praying for the will to do that yeah. <laughs> essentially, yeah. you know, like to, and actually moving forward into doing that next right thing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, in my mind, I tie the idea of prayer back to the idea of being willing. You yeah, know? That's, that's exactly it. That's language that you hear, especially yeah. earlier in the steps, you know, just becoming willing to, to, to know what the right thing is and to do it. Mm-hmm. That's all that means, right? Praying mm-hmm. for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. It sounds highfalutin. It really does. But really, mm-hmm. it's just being willing mm-hmm. to wait until you know what the right thing is or as close as you can get to it mm-hmm. and then just being willing to do it. That's all it is. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be some big, it's not a big heavy religious thing for sure. Mm-hmm. I, if I can do it as an atheist, you can do it too. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you got to parse the language a little bit. You know how sometimes things are written in like older language and or language from like a different tradition and you just have to kind of translate it into yours. It's like reading Shakespeare or Chaucer or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're fucking amazing stories, but you have to like be able to kind of, in your mind, translate, translate. like English to English, you know? <laughs> yeah. These are all words I understand, but it's an older sense of them. So yeah. you gotta kind of be like, okay, what does this mean? But yeah. once you kind of get the rhythm of what the language means in contemporary terms, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is screamingly funny. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> right. Same, you know, same, same kind of thing. So uh, that brings us to step 12. <gasps> step 12. Step 12 is like, it's the foundation of so much of the work that I do in my life. Mm. Uh, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Word. So much this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's break this down. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Again, super important. It's not a religious awakening. It's not that you have become born again as a result of these steps. (laughs) That's not the point. The idea is that you're awakening in yourself uh, just a director connection to an innate spirituality that I think all of us have. It's just a deeper connection to our spirit. To your own spirit. That's what spirituality is, right? I think people are like the spirit, right? I think that that is one of the like, like organized religion has done so many devious substitutions, right? Like we're careening toward one right now, Christmas. Well, why is Christmas on December 25th? It's not because that's when Jesus was born. He was born in springtime. Uh, but like the reason they did it is because there was a very important solstice holiday. All the holidays back in the day were pagan in nature. They were celebrating nature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were gods because there was a God of this nature thing and that nature thing. Well, you know, you, you, if, if you're running an organized religion trying to get it off the ground and really take over with that's very threatening to you. So you've got to supplant their holiday with your holidays. So you're like, well, we're moving Jesus' birthday to right <laughs> around the same time. He is now born on the 25th of December, definitely not in April. And, and we're celebrating that. And all of a sudden, like, well, now, there's no solstice holiday. And in the same kind of way, like they, they, they use the word spirit to refer to a specific thing that isn't you. You know what I mean? Like the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. you know, which is bullshit because the spirit is within us. Every one of us has a spirit. And the idea is that we want to connect as directly and honestly to it as Mm -hmm. possible, right? You want to get past those layers that we have built up that can conceal it from us, right? Mm -hmm. Ego, fear, shame, all those layers of plaque that sit on top of that. It's Mm -hmm. like restoring a painting in certain ways, you know? Like the, the more you can restore that like pristine painting that's on the inside of you of who you are, that's your spirit, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just grime that gets caked onto it from societal interactions, from personal issues, from mm. mental wellness problems. They all can contribute to really obscuring your connection, your vision of that, like your inter- your spirit and your connection to it. Mm. And so when we're talking in this about having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, all that means is as a result of these previous 11 steps, this, spirit, this personal inventory, uh, we are more closely connected to our spirit. That's all that means. Yeah. 
-hmm. doesn't mean that you had to come to Jesus. Right, yeah. (laughs) And and if you want to use that colloquially, okay, that's fine. You can have a come Mm -hmm. to Jesus in a personal way. And can I just say, it feels damn great to be connected to, to myself in that way. Yes. Yeah, I spent years in organized religion feeling completely disconnected and yeah. feeling a lot of shame about why why am I not feeling connected? Everybody else seems to be connected. At least that's what their outward you know yeah. behavior is is showing me, but I am not feeling what I think I'm supposed to be feeling. I'm not connected at all. You know, so like probably to, everyone's just faking in the same way. Maybe. I don't know. Because you probably looked shiny and perfect to people who were looking at I'm you too. I'm sure I did. Because you were probably as good as they were at like at, at doing the things. I mean I talked in my origin story about how my experience in church was a contributing factor to my codependency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got real good at pretending yeah. to keep up facades for people and for myself to some degree too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so, but, but my, my point is that, you know, it feels really good to be in touch with my spirit. Yeah. Like I, that it's, um, that's where, that's where my, when I say I'm feeling content, that's often really kind of what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm in touch with myself and I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. And that feels great. It's good. Yeah. That beats like, what came before, the gosh. Wor- the world is on fire. And I still have that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not dependent on any external circumstances at all. And it's wonderful. So yay, spiritual awakening. Yeah. <laughs> yay, spiritual awakening. It's a good thing, not a weird, creepy religious thing. So having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. Carry this message to alcoholics. What does that mean? Well, that is you know, anyone who knows me has seen that in action. The way that I talk a lot about sobriety and just put it out there and mm. just try to let people know as much as I can mm. that that is something I have done with my life and that I have seen benefits from it. Mm-hmm. That's carrying the message. That's all it is. I yeah. mean, what we're doing right here, this mini series, this is carrying the message. Yeah, Carrying the message is whenever you're talking just in a positive, constructive and helpful way to other people, you know, about the, 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 transformation that you've undergone, Mm. you know? And it doesn't mean being preachy. It doesn't mean standing on the corner with a bullhorn. It doesn't Mm -mm. mean being like distasteful or weird. It just means- And it's not proselytizing either. No, it's sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Yeah. That's all, you know? Uh, Experience, strength, and hope. It's like a three-part story. All good stories have three parts, right? (laughs) I mean, it's, and you can think of experience, strength, and hope if you like talk about that slightly differently. It's what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, which, spoiler alert, is the exact structure that we've been using for this extended share that we've been doing. You know what I mean? It's all the same stuff. It's Mm -hmm. just storytelling. Yeah, and I find myself doing this, uh, you, you are so very public about about, about your sharing about your alcoholism, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Um, you know, my issue being codependency, it's a bit more squishy. Mm. And so I find that when I have the opportunity to share, it's oftentimes more in a one-on-one setting, yeah. you know, where someone's sharing with me their story and I feel like I can relate. And so I tell them that. And if maybe it you know, opens the possibility of me sharing more of my experience, it's never, dude, you're a codependent. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's not spreading the word, you know, like no. it's, it's literally just identifying with another person's experience and being like, yeah, I totally have been there. Here's what happened for me, yeah. you know, and, and leaving it there. Like there's, cause it's, again, it's about, it's about just sharing 
sharing your story from your little side of the street and not expect any outcomes. Yeah. It's just, it's offering. It's Letting, an offering. And then let people do it what they will. Yeah. Or won't. And that's their problem, not exactly. yours. But making yourself available. Yeah. You know, that's the point. And that's why, like, really like only alcoholics can truly talk to other alcoholics, mm. you know, because we're the only ones who get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I can talk to a drug addict. It's the same stuff. You know what I mean? But like my point is that people who have been through the crucible of pre-recovery and then recovery, mm -hmm. we're the ones that like fundamentally intuitively know what the other person is dealing with. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have to ask, like I never have to ask somebody who comes to me like, like I, I think I might be alcoholic. I don't have to ask them any questions. Right. You know what I mean? I might probe about their specific situation and how mm -hmm. they're feeling about it, yeah. you know, just to get a sense of the details. But like they don't need to tell me about the shame and the fear and the burden and the constant stress because I already know. Right. You know what I mean? That whole thing that AA is saying I shared last time about like AA is the only place in the world where you can walk into a room full of strangers and reminisce, yeah. that's the value, right? That's why it's so powerful mm -hmm. because everyone who's done this already knows where the newcomer is at, where they're coming from because yeah. they've all been there. Right. We've all been newcomers. Like we've all been in that pre-sobriety phase where everything was horrific for the exact same set of reasons mm -hmm. and then we made the change and now it's not, mm -hmm. you know? And so we already know and that's great because then we can just use our experience to help other people. Right. And it's really, really wonderful. And you know, when I said that uh, this is the foundation of so much of the work I do, I don't just mean in terms of like sharing my sobriety with people. I mean, literally in terms of like learning, like like how I approach my, the work that I do, the music work oh, yeah. well, from a service mentality. Well, and what's the last, read the last part of the step. It it's says- To practice these principles in all our affairs. Oh my God, that's yeah. foundational. Like I approach, like you, like, you know, you, you approach your work as service work, but I was, I was gonna say the 12 step principles permeate every aspect of my life. Oh, yeah. My marriage, my relationship with my family members, with my friends. For better or for worse. My friends, yeah, exactly. And like including the ones that aren't working out good and you have to do boundaries. Yeah. Like either way, like it totally. permeates the, the yeah, relationship. Yeah. Absolutely. My friendships, my my relationship with my community, with my work life, like how I, like I, I, everything, yeah. everything yeah. <laughs> goes through this filter. Yeah. In all of my affairs. <laughs> yeah. And so like when we were talking in the first part, like when we were doing sort of essentially our ad for misfitstars.com slash support right, earlier yeah. today, and mm -hmm. we were talking about like how, you know, in my work, like I'm doing all this mentorship of other people, all this sliding scale that comes directly and fundamentally from the 12 step of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. For me, like yeah. that's where that idea yeah. comes from. Like, I finally, we've just figured out a way to partially fund it. Right. You know what I mean? Right. That's all. I mean, like I have always wanted, like I've been talking to you for, I mean, 15 years about how I've always felt like there's a fundamental disconnect yes. between like having to charge people for the work I do for them musically, yeah. you know? Like there are, there are abstract reasons why it can be good for people to have some skin in the game, yeah. you know? And I think mm -hmm. it generally, you know, I think that can be true mm -hmm. in a lot of situations. But like above and beyond that, you know, I would work, I would do all the work I do for free. Like, like people say, what would you do if you won the lottery? I would just do a lot more <laughs> records for free. Yeah. Honestly, that's it. Like, and when we're asking people to support our work, what we're what I, what it really means is like, give me more opportunities mm -hmm. to do the service work that mm -hmm. I want to do in the world, vis-a-vis -vis music mm -hmm. and art, which is my area of specialization. The thing about doing service work is that it gets you out of the driver's seat, or it gets you out of the of the of the I'm in control and I'm the most important person seat. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's putting the focus, you're, you're, you're focusing your energy in service of someone else. Like you're, you're, 
you're setting aside yourself, yeah. which is over and over again, as we've seen through all these steps is part of the deal. Like, like we, we need more opportunities and we need to take as many opportunities as we can create opportunities to get ourselves out of the center of the universe. Yes. You know, this is specifically why I really like doing mastering as a discipline within audio. You know, it's related to audio production. Uh It is helping produce the final version of a piece of recorded music. But what I love about it is is of all of those, it's arguably the one that is the most selfless, that has the least amount of like I'm putting myself into it. It's the most purely service-oriented version of engineering work. You are purely augmenting another person's work. Yes. In that that's yes. interesting. Sometimes a few other people, right? Like yeah. an artist, a producer, a mixing engineer, mm-hmm. like all of their work. I need to try to identify it, localize it emotionally, and then signal boost it. Honor it. Yeah. yeah honor it. Like identify it, honor it, and boost it. It's interesting. You know? And that's really the core of that work huh. I've, I've come to learn, you know? That's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really like it. Um, so... Yeah. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. It just means, like, if you want a really short way of saying this, what it means is you're just, like, living this Mm. work, Mm -hmm. you know? The work doesn't die at the end of the 12 Mm -hmm. steps. And, like, there's an explicit call to action in the 12th step, right? Mm-hmm. It's the ongoing action of the steps. Right. It's not one through 12 and done. It's one through 12 and then just you keep going. Yeah. You just keep doing it and you just keep figuring out how to be more intellectually and emotionally rigorous mm-hmm. with what you're dealing with in, in your day-to-day life, mm-hmm. you know? The point of it being an ongoing thing is that uh, there's this pr- premise, this principle that you get taught really early on when you're getting sober, which is that your alcoholism doesn't go on pause when you stop drinking. Like, mm. if you think about alcoholism as being a progressive disease, right, where it gets mm. worse and worse and worse. So maybe, like, when I was 15, I was an alcoholic, for sure. Mm. I was already using it in an abusive and bad way. But, you know, I would drink, you know, I mean, as as much as I could get away with it. What was that, once every two, three weeks, whatever, whenever right. there's a party or something like that? I, I wasn't a daily drinker. I couldn't go to the bar. It wasn't right. normalized as part of a daily routine. I didn't have a glass of wine with dinner. None of that, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> but, like, as you... Habituate. I'm imagining you as a like 16 year old mom. Where's my wine? Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's more Europe. Definitely not yeah. America. Um, and you know, as you habituate yourself to the addictive thing that makes your symptoms feel temporarily better, like your relationship with it deepens, but like not in a good way, in a bad way. You know, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and it keeps getting heavier and more problematic, you know? And you can think of it as being like a a line going from lower left to upper right. Imagine just a graph of something increasing, Mm -hmm. right? Well, when you stop drinking, you might think that that line just flattens out and straightens out. And if you start drinking again, it'll start from where you were. So if you got up to four on the badness scale and then you quit drinking for 10 years, you just hold it a four, And then you Mm. uh, maybe pick up from there if you start drinking again, God forbid, Mm -hmm. right? But the theory that they have in AA, and I've Mm -hmm. I've seen this borne out enough with people who have relapsed to understand Mm -hmm. it to be true, is that like, if you say that your badness is increasing one per year and you quit, you know, 10 years in, so you're at a badness level of 10, you know, people think that you just hit pause and you're just coasting at 10 inside of you. And if you pick up again, you start from 10 going upward. Say Say you quit for five years. The theory is that actually... 
if you were to pick up again, you would start at a 15 because mm. like it keeps growing inside of you. It's interesting. The potential for damage, the potential for you just mm. to really run with it, which is why so often you see people who've been sober for a while relapse and they're dead within a year of relapse. Right. Because it gets so bad. Right. So quickly so because like the disease progresses inside of you because that's mm. how progressive disease, diseases work. Mm. We don't have a cure, right? We mm. have a temporary reprieve. Yeah, a daily reprieve. A daily reprieve. You know, it's like a pill that we take every day that mm-hmm. keeps our whatever symptoms at bay. And, you know, but if we stop taking the pill, we're going to die really quickly. Right. You know, yeah. and like a maintenance drug that you might have for some chronic but manageable disease that exists in your body, like a physical disease. It's just, that's the metaphor you want to think. Like it's a right. chronic manageable disease, but it progresses and mm. you know and the point of the of the of the 12 step in general is that you want to keep this at the forefront of your ex- experience in the world right. and your existence, you know? Right. Because the second, like, you think that, like, oh, no, I'm cured, I did. I did 12 steps, I'm good. Those people you were mentioning who refer to it as I'm recovered right. in the past tense, right. that's a huge red flag. Right. Like if, like, if you're not actively recovering, you're in trouble. Yeah, like, I trained for a marathon years and years ago. And training for a marathon requires, a like, daily activity, right? Like, where you have to build up to, you have to build up your muscles and your lung capacity and your stamina and all that kind of stuff to get to a point where you can run a full marathon. Yeah. Um, and I stopped training for that marathon back then, and I've not done that kind of training since then. I'm not going to go run a marathon tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But if I want to stay in that kind of shape, that's something that I have to keep keep in my life, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's a similar thing to that. But like, I really kind of like see myself as a person in recovery. Like this is part of my identity. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just like a, like maybe the most fundamental piece of who I am, you know, in terms of, of how I view myself and my life and my, and what I do with myself here on this earth. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It is, it is a part of me. Um, and in a way that, um, uh, it's just inseparable from, it, it's inseparable from, from me. Uh, it's inseparable from me living the kind of life that I want to live, you know? Yeah. I want to be in marathon shape emotionally, yeah. psychologically. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's, as a metaphor, I'm, I'm actually not in marathon shape physically. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I want that, I want to, to be um, in that kind of shape in my life because... My life is so much better yeah. <laughs> when I'm living in that shape, in shape like that. Yeah. You know, like that, that's, that's what I want. And I know that if I let this stuff slide, if I let those little things, you know, if I don't do my personal inventory, if I don't do my, my prayer and meditation, I don't do, you know, the, the being of service, you know, if I don't do these things to keep up with all of it, I'll lose it. And I don't want to lose this because I, for the last 17 years (laughs) since beginning recovery, have had only increasing amounts of contentment, joy, peace, serenity. Like, I I want all those things for the rest of my life, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? And I know that if I don't, if I I stop making this a foundational part of, of who I am, that I stand to lose those things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, so the the program 
the 12 steps mm -hmm. are sort of encapsulated in the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh -huh. But it's a 400-page book, right. slightly more than 400 pages. All the rest of those pages, the remaining you know, 236 pages or whatever it is, are just uh, like personal stories from different people who right. like uh, were part of AA early in the program. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's this wonderful quote from uh, one of the very early on uh, stories, uh, Dr. Bob's Nightmare. Dr. Bob is one of the two people the who founded AA. There's mm -hmm. Bill Wilson, Bill W., and Dr. Bob. Uh, and there's this wonderful quote from, from it. He says, I spend a great deal of time passing on what I learned to others who want and need it badly. I do it for four reasons. One, sense of duty. Mm -hmm. Two, it is a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Three, because in so doing, I am paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me, mm. right? Uh, and four, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. Oh, that's cool. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? You hear, uh, you hear Christians talk about uh, fire insurance, Right, oh, gosh. <laughs> like going to church, praying, doing churchy stuff, whatever. It's, yeah. But it's like the same basic idea, right? By keeping yourself closer to the program, it's like you're buying more insurance against the thing that the program protects against. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's the people who who get far away from their program who just who don't carry it with them in a present way, in a day-to-day -day way in their life. It's, yeah. it's, they're, they're, they're the people who have relapses. They're the people who have slips. Because yeah. those are the people. Like the idea that you could maybe drink normally or the idea that there is just a pain that you have that you can only deal with with alcohol or with drugs mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. that idea is always there flickering at the back of the imagination of even the soberest alcoholic. Mm -hmm. You know, It's back there for me for sure. Yeah. But what makes me not entertain it in any serious way is just continuing to do the work yeah. and keeping this mindset these ideas, these principles, just very, very present mm -hmm. in my life on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And never straying far from them. Yeah. You know? Not to sound as though I am leashed or I have a short leash or like I, <laughs> it's quite the opposite. It's the weirdest thing. It's like by keeping myself super close to this, I have had this unimaginably cool life. Yeah. Like I had all these dreams of being a rock star, touring mm -hmm. the world, doing rock music when I was a kid. That's all I wanted to be was a rock star mm -hmm. you know, when I was like 18, 19, 20. Uh, but you know, all I did in my 20s was just drink and fantasize and talk about <laughs> how I wanted to do this. Yeah. And as soon as I got sober, literally within a year of getting sober, I was doing my first international tour. Mm -hmm. Year and a half maybe, mm -hmm. you know? It was, it was very early 2006 mm -hmm. and I got sober in June 2004. So yeah, a year and a half, mm -hmm. you know? But I immediately, I was, I was making my living only doing music in rock clubs, doing sound in rock clubs, literally the week I got sober, <laughs> you know? Like, it was just like flipping a switch. Like, all the stuff that I've wanted to achieve in my life, finding an amazing partner, mm -hmm. you know? Building a life. Like, all this, all this stuff that I just think is so super cool. We have this, it's, it's not a huge life, but it's a wonderful life for me that feels very fulfilling. Mm. It feels very on purpose. For who, it feels on target for who I want to be in the world as a person. Yeah. And all of that's possible because I have managed through very active and conscious work to, to keep these principles and ideas recovery. just really close to me in my life. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. How cool. How cool. Well, people, so that's, that's the 12 steps. We have now talked 
through in a lot of detail each one of the 12 steps and like what they what they mean in our lives you know mm-hmm. if it's okay i've got a couple more uh a couple more a quotes that i just want to end with oh sure yeah yeah um and i want to say also yes. that your story is not over Mm-mm. right like your share this is the going through the steps is kind of like a very protracted middle part of your story this is the what happened yeah so we get to hear the the um, what's it like now in a future episode, maybe next week. Yeah, um, and I've got or some, maybe yours. Who knows? Well, yeah, I've got some remaining things too. I I structured my share very differently than yours, and I do have some stuff that I want to talk about in terms of like the tools that I use on a like in a sort of on a, in a daily sort of way to keep my recovery close um, and talk about those more specifically. Uh, but. Um, but yeah, so we get to hear more uh, about this uh, continuing next week, which I'm excited about. Yeah. So I get this email every single day <laughs> and have done since like 2004. I found it very early on in my sobriety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny, like all of my other like mailing list emails come to a specific email address I set up for list stuff. This one comes to my main work address because I, I wanted it always to distract me. Oh. And my rule is that... Uh, that I, as soon as I see this email come in, I read it. Doesn't matter what okay. I'm doing; it's just important to me, you yeah. know. And it's just like a little. It always has like a little quote from either the AA Big Book or sometimes the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, which is like a companion book. Uh, and sometimes, you know, other related, you know, print material. There's a lot of literature, but mostly it's from those two sources. You know, either the uh, the 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 Big Book or the Twelve and Twelve. And uh, there's always a thought to ponder. Yeah, you know. And sometimes they're corny, but sometimes they're just like eerily on target for where I'm at. And mm-hmm. these, I want you to know, these both came in over the last week. Okay. So apropos for this discussion we're having, right? Right on. So there's two quotes and a thought to ponder, right? Okay. So the first one says, uh, and this is a quote from the uh, the into action part of the big book. So this is within, for, it was right in the middle of the uh, of the 164 page part where it's just like that's that's yeah. the meat of the program, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is from page 82. It's literally halfway through. It's exactly in the middle, and it's uh, it's right around uh, step four. Okay. Um, and it says we f- we feel a man is unthinking. And by the way, this is all like they use the word man. It was a largely male program when it started. It was just a mm-hmm. bunch of guys helping guys. Right. And, like, and they, got, they brought women into it really quickly, but all the foundational literature was written. Like, and so it was it's also, very gendered language. Also, it was the 30s. Things have changed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so just know that just substitute person and they for man and he. I'm not yeah. going to try to transliterate it on the fly, okay? okay. Um, we feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He is like the farmer who came up out of his cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? <laughs> right? The idea being that like just stop, it's like we were talking about earlier, just stopping drinking, that's not enough. Right. Like there's, there's, there's all this wreckage. Your house is destroyed around yeah. you. Sobriety is putting your house back in order. Right. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, and then the other thing that I noted from uh, these emails this week, this one comes from uh, the 12 and 12, talking about, st- again, step five. Okay. Uh, and it says... Provided you hold back nothing, your sense of relief will mount from minute to minute. The damned up emotions of years break out of their confinement and miraculously vanish as soon as they are exposed. <laughs> as the pain subsides, a healing tranquility takes its place. Yep. Right? Just to, I, It was important to me to read that just to kind of really recenter on the mm. idea of 
you can free yourself of the stuff inside you that you've been holding on for your entire mm-hmm. lifetime that has made you feel like shit for your entire lifetime yeah. in some small or large way. Yeah. You don't have to hold on to it. Provided you hold back nothing, you will have this healing tranquility. That mm-hmm. evenness that you're talking about, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And then the, the thought to ponder uh, that came with that one uh, really for me just like sums up all of this and the mm-hmm. entire reason to, that I think is valuable to engage in step work. Sobriety without action is fantasy, mm. right? Yeah. If you don't do the work, I mean, you're going to get out what you put in. Yeah. Stopping drinking is, that's something, it's impressive. But if you don't actually put in the work and excavate and deal with the stuff inside of you, you're either going to be miserable for the rest of your life and what kind of a life is that? Or you're just eventually going to go back to drinking or whatever it is and it's going to get worse for you. Yeah. So, you know, if you're, if you've been listening to this series and you have been carrying torment in your life that you don't know another way to deal with, mm. the answer is work. Mm-hmm. And you know, that can sound a little scary because taking on a new work thing, that, that can be intimidating. I get it, mm-hmm. but it can happen for you. Like if you want to be unburdened, not just temporarily, but like permanently it's in your rear view for the rest of your life for this kind of stuff. That, mm-hmm. that can be a thing that you can have. You can have that if you want it. I was it just takes work. I was listening the other day to a podcast, to Brene Brown's podcast. She was interviewing um, a new, newish singer-songwriter and I cannot remember his name for the life of me at this moment. I wish that I could. Um, he's lovely. But they, they were talking about um, the idea of dropping keys mm. and that all of us are in cages of various sorts. Uh, cages that other people have put us in, cages we've put ourselves in, and that um, that those of us who have gotten out of our cages can go around dropping keys for other people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, 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 it's, and it's not up to me to open your cage, but I can drop a key. Yeah. And you can reach for the key and, get, and free yourself. The work is the key. Let's just, let, let's just drop this key right here. I love <laughs> and say it. the 12 steps are a key to get you out of that cage that's making you feel like you're not living life the way you think you could be living it. I love it. You know? Dropping keys. Yeah. Cool. Well, as always, if anyone has been listening to this and has questions, thoughts, wants to talk about it with somebody who understands, you can uh, reach out to either one of us for that. Mm-hmm. Jamie at MisfitStars.com, Shannon at MisfitStars.com. We're always here to talk about this sort of stuff with you. So if you want to talk about it, send us an email. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, Thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks for taking our words into your ear holes and our our, uh, messages into your heart. We really appreciate that. Yes, we do. And uh, if you are finding this series valuable, if you are finding... Uh, that what we're doing with our lives in general is something that you want to get behind and support and you have not yet joined Misfit Stars, we welcome you to do that. Misfitstars.com slash support um, to just keep this engine running. Yeah. And uh, if you don't have anything else to share, I will just say we'll be back again next week. And until then, take good care of yourselves. Be good to each other. Yeah, we love y'all. See you later. See ya. 